Hey, everybody, and welcome to the NFL Road Show. Lindsey Rhodes here on the Monday of Week 8. One game left tonight, Bengals-Browns, but we saw 26 teams play yesterday and two on Thursday, so we've got a lot there to react to. Plus, we've got the trade deadline coming up on Tuesday. 4 Eastern is the deadline, and I kind of feel like we're going to see some stuff go down. We've already seen a few trades, including one on Monday. Today, Bears linebacker Roquan Smith sent to the Ravens for a second and a fifth. It's an interesting deal for a number of reasons. First, for the Ravens, they get a good player, the NFL's leading tackler, and according to Next Gen Stats, the linebacker with the best sack rate in the league. But he's also in the last year of his deal. So will Baltimore re-sign him to a new contract that will no doubt be pretty costly? Or will they treat him like a rental and get a third-round comp pick if they lose him in free agency? They could tag him potentially, but remember they also have Lamar on the expiring deal and might need to use the tag for him. Coincidentally, like Lamar, Roquan does not have an agent, so that's another layer for Baltimore to work through here. And by the way, they just found out that they're not going to have Rashad Bateman for a few weeks. He's got a foot injury and will miss some games. Good news, it sounds like Mark Andrews may not. He has shoulder and ankle injuries, but according to John Harbaugh, they are not major. As for the Bears and what they get out of this deal, remember they traded away Robert Quinn last week. They are collecting draft picks and setting themselves up for future years. They're also freeing up a lot of cap space. They currently have about $100 million to work with for next year, and they have two seconds, four-fourths, and two-fifths to go along with their first, third, and seventh round draft picks for next year alone. Unfortunately, this trade went down right after I finished taping with my guest today, who coincidentally wrote a paper on ways to measure linebacker instincts in which he mentions Smith's susceptibility to biting on play action as a reason that the Bears might not give him the contract that he's looking for. He literally just tweeted about this three days ago. Now, boom, the Bears trade him away. And Eric has spent part of his day dunking on people who called him stupid for saying this. I'm referring to Eric Eager, formerly of PFF, now with Sumer Sports, who I'll bring in in a little bit. I'm a little bit bummed, obviously, that we didn't get to have the discussion about the Roquan Smith trade. But we did get to talk about other facets of the trade deadline and the season to this point in general, including, of course, the specific games that we just saw in week eight, in which the most notable results to me, I mean, obviously the Eagles remaining undefeated. That's big, 7-0. and And how about the way that they won that game against Pittsburgh with the deep ball this time? Four touchdown passes of 20-plus air yards three of which went to A.J. Brown. Eagles offense continuing to look very versatile. While their schedule lays out really well for them moving forward, their next three games, you guys, are against Houston, Washington, and Indy. They could very well be looking at 10-0. What might Seattle be looking at? They continue to roll with a big win again yesterday against the six-win Giants, kept Saquon Barkley in check, called a masterful game on offense, and listened to their schedule moving forward. It's less obviously easy than the one that I just rattled off for Philly, but they've got Arizona, Tampa Bay, Las Vegas, who just got shut out by the Saints, and then they've got the Rams followed by Carolina. And the team that's playing the best out of those five teams right now is probably Carolina, who lost to Atlanta yesterday despite scoring 34 points. That game had an over-under of 41.5 and and ended up with 71 points on the board. And it wasn't even the highest total in the early window. Cowboys-Bears, who also had a low expected point total, 42.5. They scored 78 in that one. Cowboys scored 49 all by themselves. 
Previous best for them this year was 25 points, nearly doubled that total against Chicago. You guys, that early window was crazy and such a nice change of pace in a season where scoring's been down. We've talked about the poor quarterback play, relatively bad football. It's been like the year of the under in betting with really low point totals popping up right and left. Well, that window of games in the early window smashed those totals. We saw 58 points or more in four of the seven early games. Five overs hit in that window. Fantasy scores went through the roof. It was fun. But then it did come screeching to a halt in the afternoon. Scoring way down. But we had a lot of uh, Christian McCaffrey to enjoy with his hat trick of touchdowns in three different ways. Threw for one, caught one, ran for one. The last player we saw do that was our guest on the pod from last Friday, LaDainian Tomlinson, back in 2005. But an impressive display for McCaffrey. And also for Shanahan, who we knew would take advantage of McCaffrey's versatility, and he certainly did. That went for San Francisco massive for many reasons. One, just puts an end to the negativity from the last couple of weeks there in the Bay Area. Two, it hurts the Rams. Three, it shows that they can win big without Debo. And four, it lets them go into their buy on a good note with something to build on. I already had them in my top 10 last week when we talked about power rankings. What we saw yesterday is I think why you have to put them there. They're capable of a lot. Is overcoming the Seahawks, though, one of the things that they're capable of? Seattle's still first in that NFC West division and getting really good play from Geno Smith, the highest rated passer in the NFC through eight weeks. And the guy who had the most bets placed on him for the MVP award at the Caesars Sportsbook this week 18.8% of bettors put money on him at plus 10,000 followed by 18.1% of bettors who went with Josh Allen at plus 130. And the crazy thing is, plus 10,000, Gino, that's a really good bet. With the way Seattle's playing and the way that we determine that award very narratively, like if they get to the playoffs, that's an easy argument to make. We thought they were going to be awful this year because they didn't have a quarterback. It was the joke of the offseason. So if they're good and they go to the playoffs and it's not in spite of said quarterback, but because of him, are you kidding me? He's totally going to get votes in that scenario if they keep winning. I don't know if he'll get more than Allen or Hurts, but he'll be in the mix again if they keep winning. And with those odds, I might need to put something down. Speaking of betting, I wish I'd put something down on Derrick Henry. That rushing prop last week cost the casinos a ton of money. It opened at 96.5, got up to 104.5. 98.6 of the bets at Caesars were on the over, which smashed, as you well know, as he ran for 219 yards. And I still can't figure out how they set that line below 100 to start off with. I know it sounds really high, But the dude had run for 100-plus yards in three straight games. Texans were allowing 164 yards on the ground per game, and he'd rushed for 200-plus against the Texans in three straight games going in. And I don't always trust the against this team in history stats, you know, because sometimes, you know, there's turnover. But remember, these two teams play each other frequently, twice a year. So it's not like, oh, he did it against them in 2016 and then again in 2020. This is recent history we're talking about. 
So again, that one cashed and also moved Henry into a tie for first for most 200-yard games in a career, his sixth time reaching that mark. Only other running backs to do that in history, O.J. Simpson and Adrian Peterson. I think our guest today would be very happy with me talking about betting like this. It's really more his space than mine, although it's actually not his space anymore because after years at PFF helping build that company and using his data analysis to help point betters in the right direction on the PFF Forecast podcast. He is now working as the vice president of research and development for a new startup company led by Thomas Dimitrov, the former Falcons general manager. It's called Sumer Sports, and its purpose is to use analytics to create algorithms aimed at optimizing roster building. You guys, this is so up my alley. They're helping uh, NFL teams or they're hoping to help NFL teams in free agency and the draft to put together the best rosters possible. They've also talked about ways to modernize coaching searches, which I think is very interesting also. And Eric and Thomas are putting out a podcast weekly, the Sumer Sports Show. And I enjoyed last week's episode so much that I started taking notes, which is apparently how I express my enjoyment. (laughs) I'm such a dork, but I love Eric. He's such a good guy, and he's so incredibly smart, and I always enjoy having him on the podcast. So let's break the huddle. Hello, let's go! Hi, Eric. Welcome back. It's good to see you again. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really fun to be here. Happy Halloween. I'm I'm not a really big Halloween person. I'm just going to put that out there. I'm like that full-on downer that doesn't really like going to Halloween parties because there's so much pressure to like Mm -hmm. come up with a good costume, you know, and impress people. And I feel like I'm scarred from maybe not having a good costume in my childhood or something like that. I don't know where this stems from, but where do you come down on the Halloween spectrum? So I was like a normal kid about Halloween at first. And then, um, and then somewhere Along the line, my parents had like a religious experience where we just like stopped doing Halloween. And so like from like seventh grade until like sophomore year of college, I don't think I I wore a costume. And then uh, I I remember from there, it was like I had a Steve Urkel costume, uh, which hopefully people remember. I did a Andy uh, Andy Bernard costume once. Uh, You can see the theme of people I can try to emulate. (laughs) Um, this tells me nothing about you you're right (laughs) and uh and this year though uh my daughters and i are are wearing among us costumes okay like i i I tweeted out like last week like what they looked like um me six foot three trying to fit into a five nine among us costume is going to be a little bit of a chore but my kids love it so much so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna do that for them but yeah it i I had like an interesting relationship with halloween i i want to say we we had like alternative things to do uh, when I was younger, but it, it's certainly not the same as the real thing. You had like a fall festival party, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. We um we're going as Sandlot characters, my family, um, which we decided in the middle of the summer. And so the way it kind of fell out was like, okay, I'm going to be Wendy Peppercorn. Well, I didn't think this through as much as I should have because now I have to wear a bathing suit. And like, I'm going to be cold and also feel very exposed physically. Like, I'm like, this is now I should have made my daughter Winnie Peppercorn and I could have been squints or something like that. But anyway, um, so 
a relatively scary Halloween. And there were some scary experiences that we saw on the field yesterday in terms of play. And I'm not just talking about Russell Wilson because he wasn't actually awful for the entire game. It was just the first half, seemingly. What was your primary takeaway from uh, week eight? What, what do you think was like, you know, there's lots of noise every week. Like, what do you think is the primary thing that was important that we learned from this week? I think that it's becoming very clear that there are three real teams in the NFL and there are teams that, you know, for example, Detroit, who are not taking advantage of the fact that there, there is, there is real vulnerability in all in the other 29 teams. And then I think there's teams like Minnesota that are taking full advantage of that. And, you know, everybody else in between Seattle, for example, is taking full advantage of the fact that the league is down this year and, and giving us one of the better stories. But to me, it's, it's that it's that there's three teams that you can reliably say are good. And, and I, I honestly, other than, you know, there are teams that I think I'm, I'm fairly certain are bad, but then you have a team like Pittsburgh a couple weeks ago, beating Tampa Bay. Um, you know, you, you have a slugfest between an Atlanta and, and Carolina team that provided us with one of the most entertaining second halves in the, in the league yesterday. So that's kind of, it's sort of like you throw your arms up about the other 29 teams. And right. I think for, for a league in which everybody tried to emulate the Rams and go all in this year, the, the fact that, that you don't know any, like, you're not like, Hey, look, the Broncos went all in on Russell Wilson and they're not good. Like that, that's, it's got to hurt if you're one of those front offices. Um, so much to unpack there. Um, uh, a few things, the, Tampa Bay thing, I think, um, they might just be bad too. Right. Like, you know, I don't know if beating Tampa Bay at this point is anything that somebody that tells us that much about the other team at this point. No, I mean, I think that, and you look back, even like I talk about Kansas city being definitively good. Like they, they really, they went in Tampa Bay and really killed the bucks. Like how much does that even impress us at this point? Um, you know, at Baltimore the other day, like is Baltimore good? I think Baltimore is the fourth best team in the league, but I, I don't know what that even means at this point, going into Tampa and winning a one score game where you're right. behind at halftime. Like, yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, and I think, you know, I don't know how much more of it crystallizes. Like does, does Tom Brady get that much better down the stretch? Does Aaron Rodgers get that much better down the stretch, at least with, you know, younger quarterbacks, you know, Trevor Lawrence and, you know, Zach Wilson and, you know, Justin Fields and even the guys like Kenny Pickett this year, like their ascension would probably make their team fundamentally better. And you can maybe, you know, squint and say, okay, I can see some ascension there. But like all of those guys are struggling so bad that, you know, you, I don't necessarily know if you're going to see a great play out of them. So yeah, it's really hard. Like I said, like, I think some of the, you know, the noise factor in the league is just so much higher than it is on, a, on a, any given week that we've seen historically. You talked about teams that are not taking advantage of the fact that the league is down. Um, the Vikings, as you mentioned, are one team that is their six and one. When you look at them, like the data points surrounding that team, they look like a pretty average team for me. I keep putting them in my, like, you know, in, in my head, cause I'm not publishing these power rankings, but uh, the way that I'm ranking teams in the league, I still have the Vikings up there because I think they have the pieces to go on a run. Like I could see it, you know, there are some teams that have had some early success that at a certain point, I think you have to start taking a little bit more seriously just because the league is down. And so the path to get into the postseason where anything can happen and it can get super fluky becomes, um, 
you know, more realistic for a lot of these teams that like the giants, I look at the offense and I'm like, no, they're not good. But this year, I don't know how much that matters because they could still get there. But of those teams outside of the three that have clearly emerged as being good teams, which is a really small number, uh, eight weeks into the season, I think in the NFL, but obviously we're talking about the bills and the chiefs and the Eagles there outside that group. When you go to that next chunk of teams, who do you most believe in? Yeah, I think the Vikings are a team where it's interesting because exactly what you said, where, you know, last year they, they start one and three and three and five. And the year before they start out one and five, every single one, one of those years, Kirk Cousins got hot and they like got to 500. And then eventually the fact that he was, you know, he's kind of older. I mean, he's 34 years old. Like we've already seen the table fall off of Matt, you know, Matt Ryan fall off the table and, and so on. Like, I think if Kirk Cousins, who's having his worst year as a Viking, like he emerges and plays to his like capabilities, like mm-hmm. that team's going to be fundamentally good. And the fact that they've stacked six wins already could put them in a really like if e- the Eagles are going to be favored in almost every game down the stretch, except for be Dallas. Like if the Eagles falter, the Vikings are right there to get the one seed. And, and to, and to, so I think that team is a team that we have to pay attention to. Um, I think Baltimore is another one where, you know, they've gotten healthier, right? Ronnie Stanley comes back, you know, Marcus Peters comes back and um, you know, a guy like Kyle Hamilton, you know, struggled early on turns into a decent player. And then you all have Lamar handing off to Gus Edwards, who's finally healthy and, and Rashad Bateman. I think that team could, could give people some, some issues a, a Cincinnati team that we're going to see tonight. Like, I think that they have the goods. I think defensively they played really well this year. They lose chase. I think chase is a lot more injured than the reports are, but, and then the other thing that you have to look at is that schedule, which living in Cincinnati, like I want to go to a lot of games because they're facing a lot of difficult teams. Like that's a tricky one for them as well. So I think it's, you know, Dallas is going to be that team. If Dak Prescott can get healthy, they're going to be a fundamentally good team. I think a top five team, the defense is so good. The offense has playmakers in Pollard and, and, and CD lamb and, and so forth. Like those are the teams I think are in the conversation, but even then, like you, th- you talk about getting in the postseason, like there are two types of teams in the postseason. There are teams that need one lucky thing to happen. And I think of like the Patriots who had the buy for 10 straight years. Like they, all they needed to do is get a break or two and they're in the Super Bowl. Kansas City, they posted four straight AFC title games. They just need one lucky break and they're in. And then there are teams that need two or more lucky things to happen. And I think every team, except for the top three, when they get in, that's great, but they need lucky things to happen. And I think that, you know, we talked about this when I was on your show this summer or the fantasy show. It's like the birthday problem. It's like one of these weird things is going to happen Good luck trying to figure out which one it is, right? And and I that that I think if you are a team, you know, who's going to be a fan of a team who's going to be in the postseason, a Seattle or a Minnesota or a New York Giants, maybe even New York Jets, it's like that's awesome. You, you just because everybody else stinks doesn't mean I think your path is any easier. One of the things I think that we all collectively think is that when you get into the postseason, what you need to have is a strong quarterback and a strong defense. Uh, does the data bear that out? Is that accurate? The strong quarterback is absolutely true. Like, and I think defense is interesting. So one of the, one of the, the cornerstone findings I found when I was at pro football focus was, you know, when you look at performance by a team and offense, it doesn't correlate that strongly with your number one receiver in the postseason. And the reason for that is that the teams that are in the postseason have healthy defenses. That the health is the big thing. I don't know 
if guys like Micah Parsons or Aaron Donald, although he did win a Super Bowl, are the reasons defenses carry you to championships? I think it's breadth. You know, and you look at like the Cincinnati Bengals, you know, when you look at their secondary, it's no one. Jesse Bates is a star, but like really no corner that they have is truly amazing. But they had last year six players who had played a thousand snaps or were a starter for other teams in the league. And they brought them in there and they said, the best five of you are going to play. And the best five of them did play. And they were able to like squash on offenses like the Raiders who, you know, had good, you know, good passing game. They were able to curb the Tennessee Titans. And then finally in the second half against the Kansas City Chiefs, they were able to slow that team down. And they slowed the Rams down enough to win that game. It was just their offense wasn't good enough. It, it's it's those kind of teams where they have, they're healthy at the right time. You think about San Francisco as well. And then, of course, the Rams were very healthy on defense last year. Like that, I think you need a great quarterback and you need a defense that's healthy and, and, and doesn't have like glaring weaknesses that aforementioned quarterbacks can exploit. There are a few teams that are clearly in the mix this year, at least to try and get into the postseason, just because their records are so good so far. And that uh, that I don't think that our priors going into the season said we're good teams at all. And that's the Giants and the Seahawks. And I'm kind of trying to figure out where I stand on them, because I think in the Giants case, there is evidence there that they're still not good on offense, that they're just, you know, winning and they didn't win yesterday. But in the Seahawks case, it's a it's a harder argument to make that they're still not good. Right. Because yeah. it's just tied to our impressions of Geno Smith and the fact that we have a larger sample size. And I think a lot of people are expecting a regression to a previous mean that we've seen from him. But they do have the wide receivers and they do have the running back and uh, they don't have much of a defense. But, you know, so so it's a, it, of those two teams. Is there one that we should trust more than the other? Or are you also waiting for a shoe to drop, so to speak? Well, no, I think the Seahawks are fundam- have the fundamentals of a team that can emerge this way. So I, I think of them, this sounds weird because Drew Brees is such a better quarterback, I think, in our minds than Geno Smith is. But I think of this Seahawks team in a very similar vein than I think of those re-emerging Saints teams. And it's for one reason, it's the draft. They hit on, you know, when, when the, you know, in the 2017 draft, the Saints hit on Marshawn Lattimore, Ryan Ramchek, Marcus Williams. Um, you know, uh, Alvin Kamara and like you put all that together and it overcomes the fact that you made a bunch of you, you, you went all in on Drew Brees and it, it's tough to win with a quarterback making that much money like that draft covered a multitude of sins. Michael Thomas in 16 was also, you know, obviously a huge traffic. And you look at the Seahawks now you have, you know, Charles Cross is a first round pick looks like a great tackle. Abraham Lucas with a third round pick looks like a great tackle. Um, then you have, you know, obviously Kenneth Walker, who I thought you know, should have been in the Heisman conversation last year. He overcomes the fact that you lost Rashad Penny, who had been playing very good football prior to that. And then, um, you know, Tarek Woolen is a corner that I think very much fits in that mold. And so we had thought, much like we thought Sean Payton was losing his fastball, we all thought that, you know, uh, Pete Carroll was kind of on the, you know, the short end of it at the end uh, of last season. And, and, and in reality, like the guy can still coach. And, you know, even though I don't think he does the right things in game, like obviously the guy, much like Tomlin, much like Vrabel, uh, he does a great job of motivating and developing the players. And then there's, of course, I think the motivational factor of wanting to do better now that Russell Wilson is gone, that is clearly motivating this team uh, to do that. And and again, the the AFC, we we thought the NFC was going to be weak. It is. We thought the NFC 
NFC West would be somewhat of a bastion of competency among that NFC. And it has still been weak. And so uh, they, they really, I, I, you know, they're, they're underdogs this week. Uh, you know, I'm not, you know, I, I don't bet anymore now that I'm a part of Sumer, but I will say, like, I do still give out some advice to people on betting. They bet the Seahawks this week. They're underdogs against the Cardinals. That is silly to me. The Cardinals stink and, and the, and the Seahawks are actually a halfway decent team. Um, but that, to me, that, that team is fundamentally good. I think on a neutral field, that team should be favored against half or more of the NFC teams. I think the Giants, it's a little bit tougher because, you know, they're doing great things coaching. I think Dable is a fantastic, um, you know, fantastic coach. I think Wink Martindale is sort of in his bag right now. Yeah. Um, but the offensive line, you have injuries there. You're, you're depending a lot on Saquon Barkley, who looks wonderful. But they had 47 yards of offense against the Seahawks going into the half yesterday. And that just, you can't win with that. So among those two teams, I think the Seahawks are actually fundamentally good. Uh, they have a really big decision about what to do with Geno Smith after the year, but they'll get to that when they get to that. I think they're going to be a, a sneaky team in the playoffs. The Seahawks, one of the things that jumped out at me yesterday as I was watching the games was they were in a close game against the Giants. And the thing that we have all said about Pete Carroll for years is that all he wants to do is run the ball and that this is not the right approach, analytically speaking, and all this kind of stuff. And yet yesterday in that game, he ran the ball 25 times with Kenneth Walker, you know, who is crushing it. And he threw the ball 34 times. And I was like sitting there on a fantasy show, like going, hey, look, let's get a little more Kenneth Walker in there. And we were like, who, who would have ever thought we'd be sitting there having that conversation watching the Seahawks play ball? Yeah, for sure. And and that's, you know, that's, that's so refreshing. And honestly, you know, we could talk about this for hours, but like the, the, the league has not been a welcoming place for developmental quarterbacks for since the new CBA, because, you know, you see it like back when you had to spend 50 million just to sign Sam Bradford as the number one pick, there was a real incentive to, you know, to invest in players like Tony Romo, um, you think about the the quarterbacks that started Super Bowls in the 2000s. You had Rich Gann and Jake DeLome, you know, Kurt Warner, um, Tom Brady, right. <laughs> you know, guys that the league kind of had, you know, ignored because of their capital and stuff. They were Matt Hasselbeck. They were quarterbacks that the league developed because there was incentive to do so. Now that you can access, you know, Joe Burrow was the number one pick in 2020. He made half as much as the next highest paid starter, Teddy Bridgewater, because there were two fewer chasms. You know, you you fail on a Sam Darnold, you just go straight to Zach Wilson, Geno Smith, and then there's also the racial component where like black backup quarterbacks don't generally speaking get as much of a shot as white backup quarterbacks. Like you see, like two things where the Seahawks kind of win against the grain here that is really helping them in terms of you know developing Geno Smith into a quarterback that can be useful for them, and you know it sort of turns the tides on the league because. You know, the Seahawks were never bad enough to pick in the top 10 until this year. And and they were never, you know, and, and so they, they couldn't just move on from Wilson that easily. And and getting a Russell Wilson, as the Seahawks are now the beneficiary of, cost you so much that they were sort of in no man's land with Geno. And luckily for them, and 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 some of it I, I'm assuming is fundamental, uh, the part I talked about with Carroll in terms of being able to um, develop players, he's the right quarterback for the job. And he's the surplus value on him in this league is probably, he's probably a standard deviation better than any other QB in the league in that regard, in terms of production over cost. I think the tricky thing for that then though, is was there anything now, now 
when you go back with the benefit of knowing how this turns out for Gino, or at least looks like it's turning out for Gino so far, do you go back and you look at like, were there any clues there that, you know, he would develop into this? And how do you use that experience to assess quarterbacks to know when to cut bait or when to keep trying? Like we're already having conversations. Like um, I've got friends being like, Hey, Trevor Lawrence, is it just not going to happen? You know what I mean? Like, and, and I think that that's realistic in today's NFL. It's just like, okay, you got a, you got a small window to show us what you got. And if you don't take advantage of that, then we're going to move on for the reasons that you mentioned, because it's cheap to do so. Yeah. I mean, player development, in in my opinion, in the league is where the next great, you know, where the next great edge is, right? Because, you know, you can just go back and, you know, just draft a guy. And like, I say this, like, I, I'm a fan of the chiefs and like, I, I look at them and I, I think like, every player they drafted, they are the same player they come in the league as. Like Nick Bolton comes in as an 8 out of 10. He's going to stay an 8 out of 10 the rest of the time. Dorian O'Daniel is a linebacker they drafted before him. Came in the league as a 2 out of 10. He stayed a 2 out of 10 the whole time. He didn't get a second deal. And it's like, it'd be nice if if the league incentivized or these teams like had, you know, or found, found an incentive in developing these guys. But like from Gino's perspective, like there were good, there was good, there was bad. I do think uh, you know, not to try to get on a soapbox, but you also look at like Philip Walker, who is doing fun things. I'll say fun things right now, but I think they could turn into great things. You know, the developmental leagues like the XFL, you know, they, they gave him an opportunity to play the preseason. I mean, you used to have six preseason games back in the day, and now you have three. So those guys don't even get reps. You know, you have reps, you know, repetitions in the NFL, just like throughout the week, you just don't have anymore. The scout team, obviously you don't want players getting injured, but like, there's you have to you have to resolve that a little bit, which it was which is like, do these guys get reps? Um, do they can they actually get the muscle memory to learn? And then there is like from a quarterback perspective, there is like the racial component of like we're we're more than happy as a collective of you know buying into good back black quarterbacks, like you know, Patrick Mahomes, guys like that. Like the, the league is like fine, good, like mm-hmm. that, that, but but we we are quick to move on from and dismiss black quarterbacks who aren't great right away. And that, and that to me is if you, if you go against that trend, there is an edge because you're just, anytime somebody systematically undervalues something that is, that is wrong, you, you should be able to pick up the, the dollar bills off the ground there. And I think, you know, Seattle did that with Geno Smith and um, you know, I, I don't know, you know, the Panthers kind of interesting. I think they picked up Philip Walker because he played for Matt Rule at Temple more than they picked him up because they saw this as an edge, but ultimately they bucked into it a little bit. I do think there's that component of it, but to me, it's got to be the team that says, look, I don't give a crap about a gunner. We're going to play special. Like when they took away the third quarterback designation in 2011, teams just stopped carrying a third quarterback all the time. And so those guys would come back and forth on practice squads and stuff. And those guys are just not learning the offense. They're not learning the culture. They're not getting as good of reps with the players that they're eventually going to play with. Um, Brad Johnson was a backup on the Minnesota Vikings for four years before he got a chance to play. And then he steps in, he's, he's halfway decent. And it's like, I'm sure if he had spent half his time with the Vikings and half his time with Tampa Bay, just kind of filling out the roster, because that's kind of how these guys were operate now, he would not have been as good. Right. And, and I think, the league has to incentivize carrying the third quarterback again, because right now it's like, you know, the, the Chad Hennies and the, of the world are going to be the backups because they can run an efficient practice. And, right. and that's great. But like, you're just Chad Henney's not going to be a good quarterback in this league. Like we know this by now, but you know, you have, but, but 
Geno Smith could have been, right? And and Philip Walker could have been. And I think that that's a place where, you know, we can, you know, I mean, we can make some progress. Should you brought this up earlier, but uh, and not to get too ahead of ourselves, but I think that this is an interesting dilemma that the Seahawks are going to face and they don't have all the information, right? Like it'll depend on how the rest of the season goes to a degree. But what do they do if Gino keeps playing this way? What's the what's the smartest approach for their franchise? Yeah, I mean, I think people are going to say the Ryan Tannehill contract. I think that's maybe and, and that was one that I, I, I sort of uh, gravitated towards. Um, but Ryan Tannehill is a former first round pick. You and Gino is a former second round pick. Gino is a little older than what Tannehill was when they, when they, when they, the Titans bought in him. I think for this team in this time, you probably want to pay Gino Smith kind of 70% of what the market rate is and, and see if he'll do it. Um, because of the situation they're in, which is they hit on a bunch of draft picks and those guys are going to be in year one of their, or year two, sorry, of their rookie deals, they're probably going to be in an okay spot because I think that the the hard part, you know, when you look at Tennessee, Tennessee had AJ Brown on year two. They they had Derrick Henry, who they eventually had to pay. Like the window is really small when you have a draft class that is like the one that Seattle just had, but it does give you an opportunity to possibly overpay your quarterback more than let's say, you know, the Minnesota Vikings have when they signed Kirk Cousins or, um, you know, even like, it, it, you know, let's just, let's just call it out. Now I'm going to call this race now. Um, but the Arizona Cardinals, when they signed Kyler Murray, like there's not, there's no surplus anywhere on that <laughs> roster. And so that team's going to stink now, like, you know, that, but where Seattle, you have surpluses at left tackle, right tackle, running back, um, corner, uh, you know, defensive end, you know, with, if Taylor, you know, emerges, you know, even at, at, uh, Jordan Brooks, the linebacker is starting to turn into a player. I think a little bit Jamal Adams is certainly collecting a negative surplus at this point, but you have surpluses that you can take and apply to your quarterback. And then, and then this is the key one. And this is, I think where I would get worried if I'm Seattle, Shane Waldron looks like, looks like a guy who can be a head coach. Um, Many, uh, you know, many, a okay quarterback who's looked good has reverted back to being okay or bad because they lost the coordinator. That was the secret sauce. And so the, the thing with Seattle, you really do, and this is sort of weird, but you really do have to consider elevating Waldron and asking Carol to retire if you are going to go down the, the Geno Smith path. And I just don't know. I mean, you know, the, the Falcons weren't willing to do that with Shanahan, right? And the, um, the Bucks did it with their cutter, and, and that was a failure. And then, you know, so there's equal numbers of wins and losses there. But if Waldron becomes a head coach, which I think he's on that trajectory, then all the calculus changes for a guy like Geno Smith. You brought up the Falcons and I want to ask you about them because I, I think of, um, I think of you and people who think like you a lot this season, watching the Falcons play ball. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on what you've seen from them and their commitment to the run and their approach to this season, which seems to be that they've figured out, that this is their best chance to win games, at least on the surface. That's, that's my read of it because when they were down like double digits to the Bengals, they just kept running. Um, They did throw the ball a lot more this past week, which I thought was funny because my, my thought about it was that they were like, no, this is who we are and we're not going to look like we're panicking in house. And we're going to sacrifice this game because we have some winnable games coming up in the next few weeks and we can win those games by sticking with this approach. And then they actually had found themselves in one of those games and sort of went away from it a little bit. But you talked about 
you know, taking advantage of guys that you hit on in drafts, the Falcons are doing the exact opposite of that. Like Kyle Pitts and Drake London, you have on their rookie deals and they're not really utilizing them within the office offense to the degree that you would expect. Like they're not featured in any way. Um, uh, meanwhile, Caleb Huntley and Tyler Algier are just getting the rock like crazy, despite having relatively little success when they do um, get the ball. What is your thought on their approach? Because their approach, you could argue, is actually working in that they are leading their division. And this is a team yeah. that I think we all expected very few wins from. I mean, they're they're leading a bad division. There's that. But strategically, if the goal is to get to the postseason, it seems to be working. Yeah, I think if you're if you are honest about the the limitations of the approach, like I think that there are two questions. That are that I think maybe the analytics community doesn't necessarily say that they're conditioning on when they talk about the run and pass. Because to me, there's a it's an entirely different question as to if you have a blank canvas or a relatively blank canvas, what should you do? And I think that the 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 very clear answer is you develop a passing game and you develop a, a group to stop the pass and you, you prosper over time if all those things hit. And I think that the spoils to teams like that, like you look at Kansas City, uh, you look at Buffalo, um, I even, I mean, Philadelphia is interesting um, because, you know, they, they do run the football. They're great at the line of scrimmage uh, and stuff like that. But honestly, like what's taken them from an OK nine and eight team um, to a Super Bowl contender is the fact that they got A.J. Brown, they got James Bradbury, and they're throwing the alley-oop to A.J. Brown. Um, even though their quarterback isn't maybe a 10 out of 10, he's good enough in that scheme. Um, so I think obviously the spoils are far bigger for teams that can throw. If you're in that middle and the middle this year is enormous, like there are probably what I would call local maxima maximums where you can go around and say, well, this isn't going to beat the chiefs, but it's going to beat this small team set of teams that were are on our schedule. Like, I, I don't have a problem with what the Falcons are doing. And, and, and furthermore, like, I think that is, that's a different question, right? If you're the Ravens, and your, your quarterback's Joe Flacco, and he's good enough to get you to nine wins all the time, and you, and you get a great trade offer from the Eagles at 32, and you take Lamar Jackson, then you clearly are in a different set of assumptions than everybody else. And so to run a run-first option, like I don't think I've ever had a problem with the, how, what the Ravens do because they, their, their group of players are not the same group of players as the Chiefs. Right. Now, if you take a step back and say, should you if you if you had – your druthers, would you take the Chiefs or the Ravens? I think you take the Chiefs 100% of the time as far as who your players are. But you live in a, you know, like especially the Falcons right now who have, I, I, I don't have the number in front of me, like 50 million in dead money on your cap right now. Like you don't have the, you can't remake this team in the, in the Eric Eager image and, and be a passing team, right? So you got to do what you got to do. It is weird. And, and, and I think, their offensive line, like I think that there's a lot of credit that needs to go to Arthur Smith and their coaching staff. That guys that were drafted before they got there are now playing well and are now hitting that part of the developmental curve where they they can really move the ball. Um, but yeah, and I mean, given their constraints and given you know the schedule in front of them, like I don't have an issue with what they're doing. Do I think it's sustainable or do I think they can beat great teams, a la you know, or at least good teams like the Bengals with that approach? I think the answer is no. But can you? You get to nine and eight and make the playoffs for the first time in five years and make everybody happy. Uh, I think that that's fair. I think it's a very similar fork in the road that you had with the Vikings with cousins and like, 
you know, can you just get to the playoffs this year and make everybody happy? Like, okay, great. So let's do some things that are maybe easier to win this year um, that may not go completely, uh, you know, uh, coherent with the analytics community. Well, and I guess you could even still make the argument that they're building the team to be the team that you do want to be the Eric Eager model, right? Like they brought in, uh, they're bringing in the pass catchers and maybe you go get a different quarterback next year that fits that once you can allocate a few more resources to building up your offense in that way. Whereas they're not using resources to even do this. Like you've got Tyler Algier and Caleb Huntley, like, eh, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. pre- pretty much like free money. Um, in terms of the trade deadline, because we've talked a lot about the teams that are kind of fitting into that middle to go compete. Um, there's an opportunity coming up tomorrow uh, for teams to, or I guess tomorrow by tomorrow for teams to go make a move. We've seen a lot more moves in the NFL in the last few years than we've seen in years past. Um, and we talk a lot about teams that could fill obvious holes, right? Like the Packers wide receivers, for instance, how would you advise a team to go about making the decision about whether or not they should make a trade in terms of, um, ensuring that the value added is greater than the value cost. Yeah, I was at, I was at the uh, Carnegie Mellon Sports Analytics Conference this weekend. As as you can imagine, a riot. And we were uh, we were having drinks, and I was talking to a couple people who you know, and and there was a really funny you know discussion about like, look, there are just some proverbs you got to live by. If a team offers you two first round picks for a non quarterback, I don't care who that player is, you take those picks, right? And I think you even look at the Panthers, and like I think that that's bearing out, right? Like they trade Christian McCaffrey who's their best player. Like, don't get me wrong. And they get kind of, you know, depending upon which draft chart you, you, you look at anywhere from a top five pick to a top 25 pick uh, for him after you aggregate the picks together. Like that's clearly great. And given the slope of the running back position, you've got a guy like Deontay Foreman, who's out there just playing about as well as him. And, and, and you can still compete. And I think that that's kind of interesting when the bills traded Sammy Watkins to the Rams and then Ronald Darby, uh, to the uh, Eagles, and I think they made a couple other moves. And in Sean McDermott's first year, they still made the playoffs because, like, the the NFL is like so random that a team that was even kind of trying to tank can go nine and seven and make the playoffs. Like, I would say to the teams that are in the middle, if you have a player that you that that is that teams are offering you value for, and if teams are offering you for a player this time of year, they are offering you a a premium for that player because you know when you look. In-season trades are almost always a ransom for the teams that 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 trade the player. So, in my opinion, unless you are one of those top three teams, unless you are the Chiefs, the the, the Eagles, or the Buffalo Bills, and a team offers you for anything other than your quarterback a ton of draft capital for any one non-quarterback, you take that trade. And I think, and because again, like you still might be able to compete without that player, and you're just getting a ton of value because teams fundamentally right now, the teams that are trading for a player right now are teams where the general manager and, or the coach need that player so badly that those picks next year mean far less to them than they do to you. And so you are getting a a premium there. So I think that that would be my approach. Now, you know, I don't personally believe that anybody offered two ones for Brian Burns, but if they did, the Panthers should have traded for him. They're trading him. Um, I think similarly about, you know, uh, you know, wide receivers like you know, Bradley Chubb as well. If you look at like a defensive end, if the team offered a lot for him, Josh Allen out of Jacksonville is another one where that team 
Um, you know, it's kind of down in the dumps a little bit, the positive point differential, but a terrible record. Like you should trade him. Like I, I, I because again, like is Bradley, is Josh Allen the reason that the Jags will finish eight, nine, as opposed to six and 11? No. And so like, just let him go and get, and get picked so you can build a team and, and you can catch your luck the way the Eagles have. What about the teams that are looking to fill a hole because they think that it will make them better enough to be good enough, I guess. Like I'm using these qualifiers because I think like in the Packers case, you know, you have Aaron Rodgers. If you bring in uh, the right wide receiver that maybe unlocks him and the rest of the offense, you become far more competitive. Um, But there's, I'm sure some calculations that the front office there is doing to say like, I don't, is it worth it? Like how much better will this person make us? In, in the case of wide receivers specifically, I'm wondering, because like in, in the Packers case, you go, mm, they need an alpha. I don't, I mean, and I think that they do, they need like a strong number one, assuming that that person might not be on the table for them. I'm wondering if there are specific things and it, it would differ for every team, right. That you should be looking for like this, this person that maybe is really great at separating or this person that can take the top off or whatever. Like you don't necessarily need just like a Jamar chase, right? Like you could go get the right piece that could help all of the rest of your pieces fit together more. Yeah. I haven't studied that, but I do think like, if you look at the guys that have really made an impact and I, I hate to like index on the Rams. I know that, that it's your team in LA and like they won a Super Bowl, and then everybody copied them and now everybody's failing, including them. And so like, they're, they're not prescriptive, but I think when you look at the, the trade that they did make that was impactful, it was for Von Miller and Von Miller plays a, a hat. The, the Von Miller represents two things that I think could, could make for a good midseason acquisition. A, he plays for a position where age does. Once you reach a certain age, you're kind of good until you're, until you decide to retire edge players. You've seen guys like, Terrell Suggs, uh, Dwight Freeney, uh, Von Miller, um, Chris Dolman way back in the nineties. Like, you know, once edge players get to a certain age, they've kind of like, (laughs) they've reached this point where like their athleticism is good enough to where it doesn't matter. And their technique is amazing. And edge player is it's the same role in every defense. You rush to the passer, you set the edge in the run game. There's not really an adjustment period. Right. So then that player comes in and they can make a humongous impact. Running backs. Another one, like, you know, I think we, I was a little low on McCaffrey because I didn't think the Niners would throw to him that much. Cause they'd never throw to running backs. They go and throw to him and, and, and running the football is about as easy as it gets in. And that's why, you know, we see running backs, we see them in their full glory earlier in their careers because it's not that complicated of a position. So running back is another one, you know, that conflicts with positional value, but wide receiver is a tough one, right? Because it's not only scheme, but it's role dependent. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think of like the Chiefs of Valdez Scantling. It's like they finally got Valdez Scantling into the role that he's comfortable with. And he looks good. Early in the season, they tried to make him an every 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 person wide receiver, and he struggles because that's not who he is. And like, you bring a wide receiver in, and the guy that's going to be available to you that is like perfect for that fit. I just think you're going to have to overpay for it. Whereas if you can get a guy like Miller, who Yvonne Miller, who age doesn't really matter that much to you. It matters to the team that's trading him. Um, and the position is a position where you can, it's plug and play. Like, I think you're just going to be much more successful with players like that or players. And they, again, this is where it gets tough. Players that have baggage like Odell or Antonio Brown, like those two guys won Super Bowls 
And they're, you know, we, we know with, especially with Antonio Brown, we know what that can do. And so you have to be a culture that can, in, uh, that can pull a guy in like that and actually, you know, get, you know, the fact is, is Mike Tomlin, you know, half of his hall of fame uh, credential is the fact that he got Antonio Brown to the stadium every day for like seven years. Um, you know, that, that, like you're going to, if you're going to want a player who from a talent perspective is the entire picture, he's going to probably have issues from a culture and, and fit standpoint. And, you know, for a team like the Packers, which I think has culture and fit problems right now, like, I don't know if you're going to find somebody that is a going to lift your passing game that much because of, you know, gaining Aaron Rodgers trust and the, and the, and the fact that you need a great all around player there. And then also the culture aspect of it. Are you, if you're the Packers, sacrificing your future? If you already have, like, you've put so much, um, you've gone all in on Aaron Rodgers, right? Like, you're paying him yeah. so much money that to not surround him with pieces, I kind of feel like in that particular case, it's the most anti-Packers thing to do. Like, that's the team that should probably sell out, right? Because at some at some point, you're not going to have Aaron Rodgers anymore. And what are you paying him all this money for if you're not going to surround him? So when everyone keeps saying like, oh, it's not the Packers, like that's not that that front office is never going to make the big trade. They just aren't because that's not how they're trained to do this. I kind of feel like if there's ever a time in the team's history to abandon their own model or way of going about doing business, it's it's now. Yeah. And, and you look at their past Super Bowls, too, like. Um, you know, they were the first team to sign a big name unrestricted free agent and Reggie White. Like that's like against, you know, who they were. They took on Andre Rise in the year they won the Super Bowl against the Patriots in 96. And and, and Charles Woodson was was, you know, a player like they never signed guys like Charles Woodson. And they signed Charles Woodson. And then, you know, two or three years later, he's defensive player of the year. They win the Super Bowl. Um, so they when they have gone against the grain, it's helped them. The the common factor is they've had an amazing quarterback in, in Favre and, and, and Rodgers. Um, so yeah, I, and, and furthermore, like, this is where I get the issue. Like I look at the saints and this is the saints are very clearly a team that did do what the Packers are contemplating doing, which is go all in the thing's going to be desolate when it's all over. The problem is, is the saints, like they're still trying to win. Right. And it's, and it's just going to delay the inevitable. And I worry about the Packers because, you know, when Rogers leaves, it sounds like he might leave after this year, like it's going to be bad. And so, you know, do you just embrace that? Do you, if you're good at Kunz, do you have the assurance from the board there because they don't have an owner that you are going to have the three, four years to pick up this mess? Because if mm. you do, I think you go in and say, look, we're going to win. Um, and for the very first time in 30 years, the Packers are going to be bad after this, but we're at least going to take a shot because look, the Minnesota Vikings are six and one. They're probably going to win the division, but the rest of the NFC is bad. And the last time the Packers won a Super Bowl, it was from the sixth seed. And so like there is precedent for all this stuff. You know, I don't like it because I think about like the team, like the Rams and like, unfortunately I, I, they went all in and it was one of those, like, we're already all in. We might as well shove more into the table, you know, as far as for Von Miller and, and so forth, you win a Super Bowl flags fly forever. So that, that's a, that is a thing. But now you look at the Rams, it's just kind of sad, isn't it? Like to watch Stafford the way he is and to watch, you know, Cooper Cup, like have to carry that entire offense on his back. And it's like, I think Gutekunst just ha has to be honest with like, okay, what's going to be the outcome of this if we trade a first round pick for DJ Moore and, and, and try to play with him? Because, 
you know, it's going to be bad later on after this because the, the Packers just haven't hit on draft picks over the last three, four years. And that's part of the reason they're in the pro- they're in the predicament they're in. Do you think the Rams are beyond repair this season? No, they have a great coach and a good quarter, a good enough quarterback, um, a defense that has playmakers and, you know, their schedule isn't the easiest in the world, but it's also like not, you know, it's not a murderer's row. I don't think I haven't looked at the strength of schedule uh, after this update, but like, no, they're not. I mean, their offensive line's bad and they do have to like work around it. And McVay is a much better early season play caller than he is an adjuster in the middle of the season. If you look at the statistics, so it's a long shot that they're going to be a Super Bowl contender, but I think they will be in the playoffs. I just think there's too much talent on that team. And I think their coach gets it too much. And Raheem Morris is a very good defensive play caller, I think. So I, I don't, I don't see them being like a non-playoff team. I just see it as you look at this and it's like going into the year, they were one of the favorites to make the Super Bowl, And I just don't see them being able to run the gauntlet again. I want to talk to you about your, your new job at Sumer sports um, and what intrigued you to make that move. Cause the partnership is very, very interesting in my mind with Thomas Dimitrov, who of course we know from his days as the Falcons general manager, I was listening to your podcast last week and I tweeted, I was like literally taking notes, which I feel like is a very good sign that the conversation was um, a good one. And because it sparked a bunch of questions for me of things that I wanted to know after you said what you said, one of the things that you said was that you don't want your success. uh, You don't want your offense concentrated on one guy at wide receiver that success correlates more on how strong your wide receiver too is. It made me think of the Bengals who of course are not operating for at least the next couple of weeks, the way that they're built that way with T Higgins is there two, and Jamar Chase is there one. Are there any other teams that can you um, elaborate on that? Well, yeah, and and that becomes more stark in the playoffs. And so, like, I I wrote that article after the Chiefs lost to the Bucs in the playoffs because everybody talked about the offensive line. But I always thought it was because Sammy Watkins wasn't who he was the previous couple seasons. Sammy Watkins, you know, was a hundred, had a hundred yard receiving game in both of the AFC title games he played for the Chiefs against the, the San Francisco 49ers in the Super Bowl. He had a 90-yard game. He had, obviously, the big catch down the sideline against Richard Sherman. And, you know, when you're playing in the playoffs, you're just playing healthy defenses who have enough talent to surround your number one. So when you look at the Packers, you know, they have – they you know, being able to hit your back foot and throw to Devontae Adams is good enough to beat the Detroit Lions twice a year, the Minnesota Vikings twice a year, and the Bears twice a year. And, you know, some bad it's, – it's good enough to win 13 games. Is it good enough? You know, Billy Bean famously said, my my bleep doesn't work in the playoffs. And like, I think that that's a similar idea where, you know, you can be a strong link system at wide receiver in the regular season, but in the playoffs, can you, can you outflank a defense? You know, the Bucks had like three or four day two picks in their secondary, and they were just well-equipped to beat a team that was very concentrated on two guys, Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. And I think the Niners were similarly equipped to stop an, a, a Packers team that, you know, MVS was hurt and, you know, Alan Lazard isn't that great of a wide receiver and the tight end position for the Packers was not existent last year. And so it doesn't like Devonte being the best player in football kind of matters less in the playoffs. And so I, I think that that's interesting because we talk about, you know, obviously alpha receivers are, are extremely valuable, but I think that, I think we're, we're starting to find out when it comes to like secondary and wide receivers, the group matters more maybe than, than each individual player does you know it it, it matters more and and so 
that was one thing that I thought Thomas, you know, because Thomas had put a lot of his money into Julio Jones and kind of, you know, he did draft Calvin Ridley, but like it fell off very precipitously after that. Mm -hmm. And when, when Julio or Calvin were hurt, like that offense didn't move. And so I think it resonated with him a little bit about his own experiences. Well, he also had Roddy right in the beginning with Julio. So you do have two strong wide receivers in that case. Who, who, who fits that bill for you right now? I mentioned the Bengals. They're obvious. Who has two really strong wide receivers? I think, I think Kansas city rebuilt their receiving core in the way that like, and you know, and I don't think it's any, I don't think if you watch, listen to my Twitter, like I have, I, you know, especially at pro football focus when we had 32 clients, I had, I had decent, like I consulted with all every team and I had, there were teams that, you know, were more willing, you know, I talked to everybody about everything. And like, you know, when I, when they went and decided to trade Hill, who's been play, he's the best version of himself right now. So they traded a great asset. But they they replaced him with Juju Smith Schuster, who's on pace for a thousand yards. They 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 got Mar- Marquez Valdez Scantling for a modest deal. He's on pace for nine hundred yards. They drafted Sky Moore. McCole Hardman's in a better role for him. They they wanted him to be the number two last year. He couldn't cut it as the number three or four. He's been wonderful. They go and get Kadarius Tony. I mean, they're building a group right that's bit better than the sum of the parts. And when you pay your quarterback forty to fifty million dollars. Like that's got to be how you win. And, and I, I think they're testing Patrick Mahomes. And so far there have been hiccups, the, the Colts game, I think the Buffalo game, but for the most part, like it's, it's hit for them. Like that to me is a great one. You look at a team that has done well this year, the Vikings, but have been not as great offensively as, as they, as their record indicates, it's because their wide receiver one is the best player in the league, non quarterback. But after that, Adam Thielen's a little cooked, you know, KJ Osborne isn't who, I think people after you know, encouraging your last year wanted him to be, and they haven't really gotten anything out of the tight end. So that's another one that kind of the opposite where I look at that offense and it's extremely fragile to whether or not a team can lock down Justin Jefferson. Um, and again, a lot of these, the NFL roster, I think you could talk about fragility is, is the main thing you want to minimize. Um, yeah. So I look at that. I look at, you know, the Steelers when they were good with big Ben, it was because they could draft the hell out of the receiver position. Emmanuel right. Sanders, Antonio Brown, like they were Mike Wallace, you know, Martavis Bryant, like they just, the whole room was good. And so it didn't really like you were more impervious to things that could, could chop your legs out from under you. Well, I'm looking around and it's funny because you brought up Tyreek. Miami is an example of a team that definitely has two really yeah. strong wide receivers. They're built exactly the opposite though, right? Because they've got two on his rookie deal. And and Jalen Waddles on his rookie deal too, but so you can kind of afford to go pay Tyreek for a, a short period of time, a lot of money to get those two alpha guys on the field at the same time. I'm not sure any other teams really jump out at me. I mean, Gabe Davis is a guy that I think is very very good as a well, as a two. The Bills are a very sharp team. You look at their investments. I mean, it was John Brown at the beginning. It was uh, John Emmanuel Sanders, and then you look, look at the draft. Every year, Gabe Davis in round four, Marquez Stevenson from Houston the next year. This year, it's Khalil Shakir. Like they, they throw assets at the position. And I, and I think when you're a sharp organization, you don't necessarily care who gets credit. You don't care necessarily which one of those guys is the best one. You don't have dogs in the fight. You just, you just pick the best three guys. I, I think of, you know, the thing you said about quarterbacks. I mean, when you look at the movements, you know, AJ Brown went to the Eagles because they had the 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 surplus to pay him because Jalen Hurts is really good. And 
you know, you add to that, and this is why premium spending premium draft picks on premium position matters. They have Devontae Smith to go with him. And then they, you know, so they, they can trade Jalen Rager because again, that's the guy that doesn't work out. And they, you know, and so you, you just have more outs there and, you know, you have the tight end and Goddard, who's a great player and like the offensive line's great. And, and so it just fortifies what is going to be a really good offense. But most of the time, these great wide receivers that are worth that dollar figure, they go to teams that are with a quarterback on a rookie deal. Or in the case of the Raiders, they go to a team where Carr's deal is not that long-term, like they can get out from Carr next year. So it is. And I, you think about these pairs, you think about the Vikings. I talk about, I think Justin Jefferson's the best non-quarterback in the NFL. Is he going to be, be able to make 30 million when the quarterback's making 30 million? Cause like, that's the question that right. Quasi and Apple Mensa has uh, on, on, on his plate next year. Like that, that's kind of, again, I think, Tyree kill was so instrumental in figuring out that Patrick Mahomes is great. And it's, and it's a, it's a sandbox where the guy's making five to 10 million a year. So he can be there now that you know, he's great. You don't need Tyree kill anymore. Totally. Totally. And, uh, to the to the AJ Brown point too, it almost goes back to the the thing I was talking about in terms of bringing in an alpha receiver, quote unquote. But there being specific data points that you're looking for that make that person specifically good for your offense, like his ability to open up the middle of the field for Jalen Hurts uh, accomplishes so many things. He's not just good, you know what I mean. He's good in specific ways that make your offense better and the people around you better. Also, why are the Chargers wide receivers not? Because on the surface, you look at like from a fantasy draft standpoint, Mike Williams and Keenan Allen. Now Keenan's been hurt, but I think that uh, they might not just even even completely healthy be the wide receivers that unlock Jalen. Hur- um, not Jalen Hurts, J- Justin Herbert. I feel like it hasn't happened to this point. Is it just because we haven't seen them on the field consistently together or are they not the right guys? Yeah. When one of those guys is hurt, it gets down to the same, the same fundamental problem, which is if you only have one guy to throw to it's defensive key on you. And, you know, so Mike Williams, you know, was, he's a good enough receiver when he's a two. I think Keenan Allen's a good enough receiver when he's a one, but you have a good two. You've rarely had that. And, you know, that, that's kind of always what the Chargers dealing with, you know, it, but it does show it, it's illustrative of the fact that like the quarterback is the ma- make the main thing, the main thing, the main thing is the quarterback. And it, you know, you put a ton of investment in the wide receiver position in terms of the two $20 million APY contracts for wide receivers, the probabilities, you, you know, you sort of, you're buying into the probability that both of these men stay healthy. That is a lower probability by being the virtue of two things that need to happen versus the chiefs the chiefs bet which is we need one guy to be who he is which is patrick mahomes and like everything else is an or probability like the chiefs need valdez scantling or juju or mccall or or Kadarius tony or sky Moore. and like that is a much easier probability to have because it's an or and not an and right like i need to have one of these things work out out of a system of five versus two things happen out of a system of two and that, you know, again, that's the hard part and, and, you know, why, um, you know, the chargers, you know, I, I, I still think it's smart to surround your quarterback on a rookie deal with, with, with great talent. It's just, you know, it, 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 this is, this is the bus probability, right. That the probability that won't work. Tell me about why you ended up at Sumer sports. Cause obviously a big fan of your work, big fan of PFF. I know you've been really integral to the growth of that company. What intrigued you about leaving PFF to go start something new? Yeah. I mean, I, I loved PFF. You know, I think that, you know, uh, George and I were, you know, we 
best friends. You know, we, we did the show together and uh, we had, we grew that company together and um, you know, he uh, you know, and, and I think he'll continue to do well there. Um, you know, I think for me, I, I always think that this, this industry and, and people might be surprised given like I'm in analytics, but like, I think that this industry is profoundly a people industry, right? And, and you know, there is a, an extremely, you know, in the, in the probability space, we call them fat tails, like the outcomes that are unexpected, but, you know, um, but are great. I think there's fat tails to investing in people. And, and you know, whether that, you know, Tage Seth now has his own podcast, he was my intern for a long time. Like, uh, you know, I think, you know, George was somebody also, we were both like neophytes in the business. We invested in each other and we grew this. When Thomas got when Thomas was let go by the Falcons, like I, the Falcons were a team that I did a lot of work for when I was at PFF and, and, um, you know, his content, his analytics guy at the time, John Tiermina and I were really good friends. And, you know, I, and, and I just asked him cause you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be, I'm going to be open about this. Like I've had opportunities to be in the front office in the league and I, I have turned all of them down in large part because I wasn't sure I was ready for those jobs. And I wasn't, I have no experience working for teams. And so, uh, I, Thomas and I like developed a, a, you know, we, we, I, when he was in the middle of jobs, I was kind of like, Hey, can we just like talk to each other for, you know, once a week for, we did that for like six or seven months, which was just like him telling me how his job was and me telling me how his, how my job was. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of developed this thing of like, Oh, okay. Here are places where I can be helpful to teams and he could be helpful to teams. And, you know, ultimately, you know, when the last hiring cycle happened, like, I think he decided instead of going back in the league as a GM, he decided to want to run Sumer Sports. And, you know, again, like, I didn't leave PFF right at that time. But it was like, over time, you're just like, okay, like, this is a person, you know, again, this is all about people, like, this is a person with a vision and a company that I want to work for. And so, you know, and, and there were, you know, there were a lot of other reasons things happened. But like, mainly, it was like, if you invest and you care about other people and their, you know, how well they'll do, like ultimately I think opportunities for other people and sometimes yourself will like open up. And like, that's essentially what happened. And, you know, I, I think we're working on really cool problems. And, and that was another big, big ask there. But ultimately it's just like, I look at the, I looked at Sumer Sports and the people that they had, Sean Clement, who I've been friends with forever, who's worked in the league, uh, you know, Paul Saban, who I always respected as like a, uh, a competitor of mine at PFF at, at, at ESPN and, and others who, you know, I've, I've really come to admire, like, it was just all about like, do I want to work with these people? And the answer was yes. What, um, what is the goal of Sumer sports in terms of taking all of these, uh, great partnerships and ideas and like from a think tank standpoint, this is like my dream think tank, right? Like with yeah. your set of experience and expertise paired with Thomas Dimitrov's real world um, application of these ideas. I yeah. think it's it's a really smart partnership. Where where do you take it? Yeah, I think it, it's it can be a lot of things. So we've started in the media space. Thomas and I have the podcast, the Sumer Sports Show, uh, which good. comes out every Wednesday. Yeah, and we're we're trying to you know lift up the conversation in the space, much the same way that George and I did on the PFF forecast, and mm-hmm. and you know we're trying to carry that mantle. And and it's going to be a little different. We're not going to talk as much about betting. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about inside baseball uh, and stuff like that. Can become and, less and, of a degenerate? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can, but but yeah, <laughs> I, it's something inherent to who I am. Um, but but it, but I think you know, on the team side, you know, the I, you know roster optimization is is sort of like the the buzzword that we're using. But we just want to make 
we want to make teams more intelligent. And I think for, for people like me, like I think of it this way, I think of the NFL right now is run a certain way. You know, I think a lot of us, you know, have had opportunities to be in the NFL. Thomas is at, you know, Thomas is a two-time executive of the year. Like he's, he's had his, he's been great in the NFL. I think what we're trying to do is build a, you know, is help, is help the league move into a space where more people like us can be involved. And, um, and you know, that, that might mean that we, you know, we uh, rosters are optimized different or decision-making is more linear and less, uh, you know, less on just one person. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's all those things. It's stuff that, you know, stuff I did at PFF too. And, and, and I think that that's one of their goals as well. And, and it's certainly a goal of ours at Sumer. Well, the podcast, uh, has been great so far. Like I said, I highly recommend that everybody go check it out. Um, and I really, really thank you for your time. I love, uh, having the ability to talk to you about football and the way that you look at it differently than I do, I think is, um, really illuminating. Well, it's always, it's always an honor to come on the show. Uh, I've been a fan for a long time and obviously now a friend. And so it's just, it's just great to be on with you. All right, go follow my guy, Eric Eager underscore on Twitter. Really good content there. You will not regret it. Also, check out the podcast. It's very, very good. Um, If you enjoyed this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review, tap that five-star button, subscribe so that all future NFL Roadshow episodes are just waiting for you there as soon as they come out. We have new episodes come out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday during the football season. Every Friday has a fantasy spin looking ahead to the weekend coming up and coming up on Wednesday, we'll be taking a look back at everything that goes down at the trade deadline. If anything goes down at the trade deadline, like I said, I think, I think we could be in store for some moves based on the way things have gone the last few years. So I hope that you'll join us for that. Thanks again to Andrew Emmer, who is our producer. As always, the NFL Roadshow is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. Really appreciate you guys spending an hour with us, and hopefully we'll see you again on Wednesday. SiriusXM Podcasts.